Happy Friday, everybody, and welcome to the Informations 411 podcast covering the biggest developments in the business world through the lens of technology. My name is Tom Dotan. I am a reporter at The Information. So today's episode is all about power, who wields it in tech, and how that is changing. We're looking at two different but related aspects of the debate. First off, we're looking at Facebook, uh, and I connect with Alex Heath, our social media reporter, who did a deep dive last week on Facebook's image whiplash in the last three to four months. Facebook went from being a hero at the outset of the pandemic, where they were ensuring that Facebook would strictly monitor the accuracy of information related to the coronavirus. No hoaxes would get through their platform. And yet, that's all changed now with the Black Lives Matter protests and Mark Zuckerberg's unwillingness to censor false or incendiary content from Trump. In our conversation, uh, we also spoke with Evelyn Dueck, who is a doctoral student at Harvard and who studies these matters and has helped Facebook create uh, this ad hoc committee that they've put together that is supposed to be moderating uh, content on the platform. And then I am talking about antitrust and the surprising role that uh, Web 1.0 mogul Pierre Omidyar is playing in building up the framework for the antitrust investigations. Uh, So my conversation with Chris gave us a chance to discuss how the various federal antitrust investigations are moving along. And uh, we also, in that conversation, spoke with Gene Kimmelman, who is a lawyer and antitrust expert who worked on the research that the Omidyar Group has put together. All right, that is our show. Heavy episode, but uh, good stuff all around. Uh, Let's get over to my conversation with Alex Heath. All right, Alex. So uh, we've brought you here again to discuss Facebook because once again, the company is embroiled in a new cycle that shows it being, uh, at least as far as the public's concerned, uh, the enemy. Uh, And in this case, they have come up to be the enemy of responsible, nonviolent speech. Um, But what is so interesting about this particular news cycle for Facebook is that they came into it um, off a pretty positive period uh, for the company as far as public perception uh, is concerned uh, because of their response to the pandemic and they're trying to position themselves as, you know, a, a platform for useful news and, and information that could get people, you know, deal, deal with this pandemic safely. And you covered that in, in this really good story that we published last week. So before we get into the insanity of what's going on now with Facebook, um, could you kind of lay out for us again, like how Facebook sort of went from uh, the pandemic into the current situation? Yeah, I mean, it was actually pretty remarkable. I talked to a lot of people who uh, worked at Facebook over the years, um, and they all said that this was one of the quickest, you know, about faces that Facebook experienced in the public eye, um, which says a lot because Facebook has had many ups and downs. But they really were riding really high um during the pandemic era, which is kind of an odd statement, but they were leaning into being this authoritative source for COVID-19, you know, reliable information, and then also taking down a bunch of potentially harmful misinformation about the virus. And uh, it was actually something kind of, as I say in the story, authorized, you know, by Zuckerberg, and it was kind of this unprecedented crackdown on misinformation related to the pandemic. Meanwhile, Mark Zuckerberg is going on Fox News and CNBC and doing all these interviews. He did easily over a dozen interviews in a couple of weeks uh, talking about all their products that they were releasing to keep people connected uh, during the pandemic. And then uh, thanks to uh, Twitter, actually, um, and obviously, you know, Trump, we all know the infamous now uh, Trump tweet about, uh, you know, when the, when the looting starts, the shooting starts aimed at protesters in, in Minneapolis. Um, thanks to Twitter's decision to label that tweet for the first time in, in their company history, 
labeling the president uh, for for sharing something that was they deemed uh, hateful, uh, you know, rhetoric glorifying violence. Uh, that put Facebook in the position of either doing the same or doing nothing or finding a different approach, and they chose to do nothing. And uh, then we quickly got to where we are now. Right, and 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 so you know we also had Mark Zuckerberg during that period vocally explaining his decisioning uh, and and what he believed are the company's course free speech values. But what sort of happened in this period with these two events is kind of the confluence of the two great crises over the last couple of weeks and months, which is obviously the pandemic and, and how we as a country have reacted to that. But then, uh, you know, the rise of the, the protests, the Black Lives Matter movement and the way that uh, politicians and specifically Trump have dealt with it. And what's kind of interesting about the combination of these two events uh, and it's something that, you know, as we were doing this this podcast, we spoke to Evelyn Duick, who is a lecturer on law and a doctoral candidate at Harvard Law School who studies matters around free speech. It seems like the pandemic itself and the fact that we were all staying inside and reliant on social media for our information uh, kind of brought to the fore how important these services are in terms of informing the masses. And that kind of, it's like one definitely led to the other as she saw it. You know, the last several weeks have been particularly uh, highly charged, probably not in small part because we're all just inside and online and consuming so much online information and you know it's really become how evident um, these platforms are how important they are to, to public discourse but also i'm sure in part as well uh because we're sort of entering the election season proper again and things are becoming um you know political speech is is in the spotlight and you know in the course of reporting the story i talked to executives at facebook former executives you know people close to the company the what i really got uh, the takeaway was that the line Facebook feels comfortable holding here is that it wants its platform to not be a place for harmful information. And there's a total, obviously, um, amount of you know, gray area in there uh, of what is harmful and what is not. But they really don't even want to wade into um, what is truth and what is not, uh, unless it particularly pertains to um, something being like harmful physically uh, to someone. So uh, that's where COVID was, I think, a little clearer for them because, you know, this is a virus that kills people and um, they saw a responsibility to make sure people didn't, uh, you know, try things that they shouldn't um, related to the virus because they saw it on Facebook, for example. So, you know, and in the story, I say, I, I have the anecdote of, you know, a Facebook policy director saying on a call um, with policy advisors that like, look, if Elon Musk or Trump uh, posts something uh, like saying to the effect of like, you know, kids are immune from COVID or something, we will take that down uh, without hesitation. But when it comes to other stuff, that's it's a little trickier. I want to get into what Facebook is thinking about. And this was a decision that was starting to be put into effect uh, before this particular news cycle, but the creation of an an advisory board that would review whether or not content uh, that's on Facebook is deemed, uh, you know, necessary to be taken down. How does Facebook arrive at that idea? And what's so strange about the existence of this board to you? It is strange. It's definitely new. Um, that is so this oversight board that they're calling it, which is going to be set up um, later this year, was really designed to make sure that uh, these controversial decisions don't ultimately rest at uh, Mark Zuckerberg's desk, which has been a huge criticism that I think is warranted that you shouldn't have a company controlled by one person making decisions unilaterally about um, free speech to for such a large audience. So this oversight board is full of, uh, you know, 
uh, like human rights activists. There's a former prime minister. There's Pulitzer Prize winning journalists. There's a bunch of other folks like that who are definitely not Facebook employees, not your typical Silicon Valley types who are going to be basically um, the, uh, the, the, ju- the jury and judge on controversial uh, content decisions that Facebook defers, the, defers to them and that users flag to them. One of the things that Evelyn was uh, a point that she was making in discussing the existence of this board is that, you know, in one sense, you want to ensure that we're not putting anybody in our society in danger. Um, but at the other times, you know, curbing the curbing of free speech in a very kind of academic and philosophical sense, uh, you know, you don't want the, as she was saying, the cure for it to be worse than the disease. Free speech theory is based on the idea that we don't want governments getting their hands dirty on what we can and can't say. And so you have this problem of like, well, who should decide then? And so the oversight board is the, the most ambitious attempt I've seen so far uh, to think through a way of cutting that Gordian knot and and finding a third way of outsourcing the decision away from these completely opaque and unaccountable private actors, but not giving it fully to the government to decide what political speech uh, is is permissible or not. At the end of the day, what Zuckerberg is doing is kind of, he's trying to um, lessen his grip on this issue, but at the end of the day, uh, he still, he set this thing up. So, um, it's we're we're still in this tricky problem where uh, <laughs> these companies have grown to such a large scale and have you know they're over so many influential decisions um, about how we communicate on the internet and we don't want governments involved but at the same time how do you how do you have them held to some kind of account right like how do you have uh, their you know I, and I think Evelyn's point about transparency was really good that you know we want things to be more transparent, how these decisions get made um, should be very clear to people. And that should be the first step. And they're certainly not right now. Where do we see Facebook going from here? I mean, what are the next big moves that the company is likely to make or at least consider, uh, you know, as as these decisions start coming up? I mean, I think in terms of controversial content, um, this oversight board is what they're really hoping will save them in the future. You know, I've heard that the oversight board members are very, very eager to hear cases like the, the Trump posts that have gotten you know, Facebook and hot water. So the moment they're allowed to do so, which should be, you know, in the fall, if not early winter, um, we might start to see that. And that will be very interesting because it will be the first time that an outside body had, you know, binding uh, ruling on content on Facebook. Um, So that's one thing. They are reviewing some specific policies related to the Trump, you know, shooting starts, looting starts post. But by the time they actually implement those, I think the news cycle will have probably moved on and people will have forgotten that specific issue that was (laughs) kind of started all this. Um, I think Facebook is probably hoping this dies over. All right, Alex, thank you so much for joining. Uh, I'm sure we'll have you back on here soon as this continues to unfold. Yeah, thank you. And as a small postscript, after this interview was recorded, Mark Zuckerberg announced he was reversing his stance and that Facebook would indeed attach labels to some posts that it deemed newsworthy if they violated its rules. Okay, so now we're pivoting to the topic of tech and antitrust. Chris, so you had this piece that took a deep look at Pierre Omidyar and his network that's been playing a key role in pushing along uh, the antitrust cases against big tech. Uh, but before we get to the kind of the broad look at it and the state of all of these cases, let's just give an overview of uh, the Omidyar network and what it does. 
Sure. Well, the Amidiar um, network was originally founded in 2004 by Pierre Amidiar and his wife, Pam. And Pierre was the founder of eBay and is a billionaire and has uh, a lot of money that he can use to focus on issues he cares about. So the Amidiar network was founded in 2004. And originally, it was this hybrid of sort of a traditional foundation kind of uh, organization, but also a social investing group. And they they invested in, you know, worthy projects like making, um, bringing food to, to places that doesn't have food and investing in businesses that do things like uh, bring out edu- help with education. Um, and then they always did some traditional foundation work, but um, it turned the corner after the 2016 election vis-a-vis big tech, sort of reorient- reoriented a one sort of arm of the, of the vast Amidiar network to focus on tech advocacy specifically against some of the issues raised by big tech. So he personally and, I, and the group uh, as a whole felt that big tech played a role in kind of swinging the election to Donald Trump, someone who he did not support, and something needed to be done to kind of rein them in and not be the, not have them be such a central force that could have done something like that. I think, you know, whether, I, I don't know whether it was specifically directed at Donald Trump, but it was also what it exposed, what the 2016 election exposed to a lot of people who previously supported big tech in Washington and elsewhere was how, sort of the dark side that data could be misused, that privacy issues were, were had run amok, and that folks could put, use disinformation to, to target small groups of people and motivate them in ways that may be nefarious. The, the advocacy turned the corner in 2016 to focus on sort of, oh, wow, we, there's this blob that's kind of taking over the world and it's big tech social media platforms. So what sort of stuff has he done uh, or has his organization done uh, rather to uh, push forward the current antitrust conversation and investigations? Well, so the what brought them to my attention is they started issuing a series of reports, including one just a couple hours ago this morning. And those reports, the first one was a roadmap to taking Google to court over over antitrust issues. The second one was uh, a roadmap to taking Facebook to court over antitrust issues. And then the third one this morning was also about Google, focusing on it just on its search business. The first Google one um, was focused on the ad tech stack and how Google was able to focus on, was able to dominate just both sides of the advertising equation, both with publishers and advertisers. So you spoke to one of the people who has helped put together these papers, Gene Kimmelman, who's an attorney in D.C. and focuses on antitrust law. And his argument uh, when you talk to him was essentially that these antitrust laws need to be updated. And specifically, the kind of framework that many people have used to describe antitrust law in the U.S., which is it is going to cause consumer harm, um, is a little bit more complicated than most people make it out to be. The consumer welfare test is often way oversimplified. It's not just about whether prices are going up and down. It's about much more of the vibrance of what the competitive process can bring the economy. The worry about consumer welfare in this is that there'll be, you know, a monopoly will end up being uh, uh, exploitative price-wise, and people end up paying whatever price the sole business power would uh, would enforce. But he was sort of making the case that this is. Uh, it's much more complicated than that. And, you know, consumer welfare can take many different forms beyond just the price that people pay, right? What Gene and others in the U.S. and in Europe are saying is that that pushes out a lot of innovation, that that in order to get so big and huge, those companies have done predatory takeouts of absorbing other companies, wiping out nascent competition, and that now... Um, 
that in effect is eventually going to create harms for consumers because consumers are going to have fewer choices and they're and you know it's 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 a uh, it's an argument that the antitrust laws currently aren't perfectly adapted to uh, the revolution that the digital economy has brought about right well he was speaking specifically to data and the role that a monopoly over data can play when it comes to power over a market that you end up having such a huge advantage over the smaller upstarts that they just stand no chance of being able to break into the business in any meaningful way yeah i mean the example of the paper they put out this morning is on search right so you have google and it has all this data it has troves and troves of data and it can serve up these search results to to people because they have you know over a billion search three billion or something search results every day and they use that data to per serve up that those 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 results and make and fine tune them to each consumer um it makes it very very hard for others to compete because they don't have access to that kind of data. And in a, in a nutshell, that's sort of the, the data problem that consumers and, and that antitrust advocates are grappling with is data is having these gigantic troves of data and gigantic doesn't even describe how big they are. It's, is that a barrier to entry and does that stop new entrants from getting into the market? One of the arguments that Gene was making is that um, rather than you know continually using antitrust law as it's written to you know, investigate these companies every couple of years, uh, creating like a larger regulatory group that would have oversight over these digital companies and, you know, monitor them from that perspective. So rather than trying to twist the antitrust into knots to do things it can't do, we're better off building up the other policy muscle that we have used for every other industrial sector in the past and let each of them uh, have focused policy interventions for things that we know we want to accomplish with specific tools that can actually achieve the job. What do you think about kind of the state of current antitrust law and whether or not it is uh, capable of handling these very modern companies that are dealing with digital concerns? Well, I'm not an antitrust lawyer or even a lawyer, but when I do talk to lawyers and antitrust lawyers, they, they insist that current antitrust law can handle these big cases. The problem is that they're, they don't take into account some of the the law doesn't take into account some issues that they want they want to deal with in terms that are unprecedented and that's issues surrounding privacy and issues surrounding data um, and and the issue of creating a regulatory body is something that Gene and others support that is actually an idea that's been imported from Europe that is also grappling with that idea of creating an oversight agency oversight of of, of big tech um, and as Gene points out that every major monopoly in our past, whether it's, you know, the telecommunications network has the Federal Communications Commission overseeing it and the, the uh, oil industry has the energy department overseeing it and that there's no equivalent regulatory agency for tech. Right, right. Lastly, the, the specter of Section 230 has come up a lot, uh, especially in recent weeks as the Trump administration, Republicans, you know, writ large, have decided to use it as a cudgel against Twitter and Facebook specifically uh, because they feel like they're not getting a, a fair shake in terms of distribution of their posts, which is a side point, it, completely insane. But uh, what do you think about kind of using Section 230 and protections of platforms as a way to you know, bring them toward more towards what they these Republicans feel as neutral. The problem with Section 230 in terms of big tech is big tech and 
tech platforms and even smaller tech really depend on on Section 230 because it protects them of being, from being sued over posts by users. And um, that's a, that has allowed companies like Yelp and Google and YouTube comments and uh, to thrive. It allows you to post on Facebook without Facebook getting sued. Um, so it's extremely valuable. And because it's so valuable, the folks on both sides of the aisle see it as a way of trying to control um, the bigger platforms. And so it's, it's going to be changed at some point. It's the, the, what, what the tech industry and the, and the government are going to have to figure out is they're now negotiating what, what tech is going to be able to have to give up in return for keeping 230. Um, the stuff that's happened in the last few days with the tech, with the White House executive order, that's probably not going to go anywhere just from constitutionally based folks that I've talked to is saying it's just it's it's a it's an empty argument and probably will get thrown out in court as soon as it faces a significant challenge. But there is kind of from a congressional standpoint, a likelihood that this is going to be updated and, and take a different form in the future. It's going to get moderated at some point there. And, and there's going to be a negotiation over what tech is willing to give up in return for keeping some sort of some broad liability that protects them against getting sued over every comment. Anyway, Chris, thank you so much for joining. This is such a fascinating topic and one that, uh, you know, with the election bearing down on us is is obviously going to be probably a different conversation in a couple of months. So I'm sure we'll have you back on frequently to talk about it. Uh, Thanks so much, Chris. Thank you. Bye. Okay, that's our show. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks again to our guests, Alex Heath, Evelyn Duick, Chris Stern, and Gene Kimmelman. And of course, once again, thanks to Ariella Markowitz for producing the show and making it sound so good. All right. Have a good weekend, everybody.